Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. You know, I was really looking forward to seeing some of you this morning, but obviously God had other plans, and I'm content with God's plan, but I'm glad you're joining us uh, online again this Sunday. Uh, Let's begin uh, by uh, praying, and so would you join me as I pray? Father God, you are the king from of old, and you are working your salvation in the midst of the earth. Father, uh, we're living in troubled times, and we ask you to work in our midst to put your glory and your kingdom vision for this world on display. We ask that you would bring healing to our land, remove this pandemic, God, please work your salvation to bring life out of death. We ask that you would bring comfort to the Floyd family for this terrible injustice that's been perpetrated. God, work your salvation to bring justice to bear on this senseless death. We ask that you would bring peace to all the cities where peaceful protests have turned into rioting and looting and the inexcusable destruction of innocent people's properties. Work your salvation, Lord, to restore order, to bring people of all races together as one people. As Dr. King said, let justice be colorblind. Let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Bring your wrath to bear on all those who would instigate more injustice to advance their own agendas rather than mourn this tragic death. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Let the rule of law prevail. Let your agenda, your good purposes, rule the day. Turn the hearts of many to Jesus, for you, Jesus, are our only hope. You are our peace. You break down the dividing walls between all people and make us into one people. Open our eyes as we look into your word this morning. Invite us, call us into discipleship with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know you don't uh, think of it like this, but every day you are being discipled by somebody. Actually, probably by Uh, several somebodies. The fact is we learn how to live from other people. Always have, always will. I mean, think of the people who have shaped your life. Uh, Parents, teachers, preachers, peers, people we admire, peoples who who have opinions that that we value, uh, uh, people in a certain political party, people in a career path that we have chosen. Uh, or if you're, in, like, if you're in construction, maybe you apprenticed under someone, like, like you were a plumber's apprentice type of thing. There, there are no exceptions to this rule. We have learned and we continue to learn from others how to live. Everybody's in search of the good life and we adopt our view of the good life from people who tell us where to find it and how to get it. Now, for some of us, that might rub us the wrong way. It's a little hard to accept, especially in, in, in this country and in Western cultures. We like to think 
that we are our own person. We make up our own minds, we do our own thing, we chart our own course, but even that kind of thinking we've learned from others, that kind of uh, rugged American individualism is just that, American individualism. And had you been raised in, a, in an Asian or an Eastern culture, you would think and live a whole lot differently. Now, if you're a Christian, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I'm going to say something fairly provocative, but if you're a Christian, somewhere along the line, you and I have learned to live more from what I would call caricatures of Christianity than from Christ himself. Now, what do I mean by that? For some of us, what matters most in the Christian life is having the right theology, which, of course, is absolutely essential. Uh, the objective truths of Christianity are absolutely essential. A follower of Jesus must know how to rightly divide the word of God, must know how to discern good and evil and right and wrong and truth and error. However, having the right theology and knowing the Bible backwards and forwards doesn't mean that we're putting the life of Jesus on display in our world today. For others, what matters most in the Christian life is experiencing God at work in supernatural ways in our lives. Things like emotion-driven worship services, emotion-driven preaching, healing, deliverance. Again, is emotion an important part of our walk with God? Ab absolutely, absolutely. Is healing and prayer and deliverance important? Absolutely, of course. I'm just saying when the subjective side of our faith becomes our faith, we don't put the life of Jesus on display in our world today either. Now here's a question. What if a lot of what we've learned about being a Christian in the church has come more from the church than from Jesus? What if understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus has come more from denominations or non-denominations than from Christ. I mean, could that be a reason that many Christians wrestle with the fact that, that they think that their faith is not working for them or that something is missing in their life? I wonder if you ever played uh, the game Whack-A-Mole? You ever played this game? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, at an arcade or something like that, I mean, these little moles pop up at different times in different places, and you have to take that plastic mallet, and you have to quickly bash them in the head to get points. And uh, I, I like it because uh, I get a whole lot of frustration out by bashing their little heads. Now, <laughs> there are times when uh, I think that my life is, a, is just one big whack-a-mole game. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Something, something pops up, a, a problem, a challenge, uh, a delay, something big, something small, and as soon as I take care of that thing, uh, as another little mold pops up, and it needs its head smashed in, right? Uh, I know that uh, during this time uh, of, of uh, staying at home and all this with kids, I know some of you moms feel that way. I mean, you go uh, from sun up to sundown, one mold popping up after another, breaking up uh, fights between kids, staying on them to get their schoolwork done, uh, calming crime, crying babies and cooking and cleaning and laundry and getting your own work done in the middle of all this. I mean, doesn't life sometimes feel like a whack-a-mole game? Problems and challenges pop up all the time. And as soon as we deal with one problem, another one pops up. Uh, one crisis, crisis is averted, and then pop, 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 three more appear faster than we can handle them. Now, I know you're saying, well, what's this, all this have to do with anything? Just this. 
many of us have been discipled into a whack-a-mole kind of faith, meaning that the Christian life is pretty much one big game of whack-a-mole. We live our lives each day without much thought of God. I mean, come on, you know it's true. I know it's true because I, I, can, I can go to work, I can come home, I, I stay home, <laughs> you know, you, you, you eat, you, you do chores, you go to the store, you watch Netflix, you go to bed, and you get up and do the same thing the next day, and God doesn't pop into most of the moments of most of our days. Most of the time, some of the time, we go to church on Sundays and because we like uh, good music and uh, entertaining preaching, but God doesn't come to mind until a pesky little problem of a mole pops up. Problem, disappointment, a delay, unanswered prayer, a sickness, uh, an overbearing boss, an unpaid bill, uh, a bad report from the doctor, uh, the mole pops up, and then we want God to whomp it in the head uh, so that we can get our lives back to the way uh, they were. And, and the bulk of our prayer life sometimes is nothing m- more than, God, please whack this mole for me, and whack this mole, and that mole, and this mole, and that mole. Now, listen, I'm not coming down on anybody. I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm just trying to get you to think. Seriously, when Jesus called you to be his disciple, do you think that he had, what he had in mind was come follow me and I'll make you a student of theology? Did Jesus have in mind when he said follow me, I'll make you to become a seeker of spiritual experiences? Or follow me and I'll make you a whacker of moles so that you can have your best life now? No, no, no. He does want you to know theological truth. He does want you to experience God working in your life in supernatural ways. He does want you to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. But when Jesus called you to follow him, he had much more in mind, much, much more in mind. And this is what we're going to be talking about for the next uh, nine or ten weeks. We are beginning a new series a summer series that we are calling Disciple. Now, if you tune in with us on a regular basis, you'll find that most Sunday mornings, we are studying our way through whole books of the Bible. And since last fall, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. And last week, we uh, finished up John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is a natural break in the gospel, and so we're taking a break this summer to look at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, the earliest followers of Jesus did not call themselves Christians. They did not think of themselves uh, as members of a religion. They considered themselves disciples, students, apprentices of Rabbi Jesus, And if you've read your Bible or been around the church for a while, you probably have a pretty good idea of what discipleship looked like for Peter and James and John and uh, and the other disciples. I mean, those men left their homes, their families, their businesses, and they followed Jesus all over Israel. And when Jesus died, rose again, and ascended back into heaven, those men became the nucleus of the new church. And we know, we know what discipleship meant 
for them back then. But the question is, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus today? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus in this time and in this place? And that's the question we're gonna be answering over the summer. And this morning, I'm gonna introduce our series by defining what a disciple is and what a disciple does. And I'll be anchoring most of what I'll be saying by looking at selected scriptures in the Gospel of Mark. So let's jump in. Uh, Take your Bible, paper or digital, and find your way to Mark chapter one, and we'll begin reading in verse 16. Mark chapter one, verse 16. Now most of your Bibles have a heading for this section, and that is uh, Jesus calls his first disciples. And that is what's going on here. Mark chapter one, verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And they immediately called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now turn over a couple of pages to chapter two, verses 13 and 14. Chapter two, 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now turn over a couple of more pages to chapter three, verse 13, from 2.13 to 3.13. Chapter three, verse 13, and he went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Now, those three passages give us an overview of Jesus calling his first disciples. And there's a lot of important detail in these three stories that help us understand what it meant to be a disciple in Jesus' day and what it means to be a disciple uh, today. So, uh, what is a disciple? I, to answer that question, I've got to give you a lot of background. So let me just start by giving you some background on the whole subject of discipleship. First of all, you need to know that Jesus wasn't the first person in history to have disciples. Um, Aristotle and Socrates and pretty much all the ancient Greek philosophers had disciples. The Greek word is mathetes, and it means students, uh, followers, men who committed themselves to being with the teacher in order to learn to be like the teacher and then live like the teacher lived. Um, In ancient Israel, the rabbis had disciples. Pharisees had disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. The Hebrew word for disciple is talmid, which again means a learner, a student, a follower, an apprentice, someone who wanted to be with a rabbi to become like the rabbi in order to do what the rabbi did. So when Jesus says, follow me, uh, he is saying, come, be my disciple. Follow me, learn from me, study under me, study me, 
and I will send you out to fish for people. I will make you fishers of men. And that wasn't a cliche in Jesus' day, like some cheesy bumper sticker. Jesus is saying, Simon, follow me, and I will make you from a fisherman into a great teacher. Andrew, follow me, and I'll make you able to do what I do, which is an amazing thing. And that's why in verse 18 it says, and at once they left their nets and followed him. I mean, if you were Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Levi, or who we call Matthew, uh, and you were offered a chance at becoming something more, you would literally drop everything right then and there and follow Jesus. Now, by the way, the fishing business in the ancient world was passed down from father to son, uh, sometimes for hundreds of years, and in fact, that's still the way that it is in, in many parts of the world today. So there was a lot of pride wrapped up in being uh, in the family business and carrying on the family business. And don't think of fishermen uh, being dirt poor or barely getting by. No, the fishing business was booming. Fishermen made a good living. And evidently, the Zebedee family had hired servants uh, helping them. So this was uh, a lucrative job. And Matthew was putting a lot of money in the bank as a tax collector because tax collecting was a lucrative job. And sure, I mean, Matthew was hated by most people, but for Matthew, making money was a whole lot better than making friends. And here comes Jesus, and he says, come be my disciple. And these five men drop everything, and they walk away from their families and their businesses to follow Jesus into the unknown. Now, what would cause these young men to drop everything and follow a stranger into the unknown? I mean, this is kind of hard to get your head around. I mean, like like you're in an office downtown, and a stranger walks in and says, hey, dude, follow me. Come be my disciple. And you put down your, your laptop, you pull off your tie, and you walk out the door. Or, or you're at the job site and a guy walks up to you, Jesus walks up to you and he says, hey you, follow me and I'll make you a builder of people. And so you take off your tool belt and you, and you drop your hard hat and you walk off the job site. Or you're in class and you're right in the middle of a lecture and Jesus walks through the door and says, hey you really wanna learn something? Follow me, stutter, study under me and I'll make you a real teacher, a first class teacher of men. And so you leave your laptop and your backpack behind and you drop out of class and you walk out the door. I mean, you see it. What would cause these men to walk away from their careers, the family business, lucrative jobs, walk away from their families, literally drop everything and follow Jesus? And to make sense of that, I gotta give you some more background. I need to take you on a five-minute detour to help you understand the first-century Jewish education system. Five minutes, just bear with me for five minutes, that's all I ask. Now, in the first century, there were three levels of education, and discipleship was the pinnacle of the Jewish education system. The first level of education was called Beit Sefer in Hebrew, and it's a phrase meaning house of the book, and it was essentially a grade school. The textbook was the Torah, and you would memorize the first five books of the Bible. You would memorize it. The Torah is 
the first five books of the Bible. It's Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you would memorize those five books. Now, for the vast majority of children, you were done after grade school. Around age 12, if you were female, you would get married and start a family, and uh, you would start having children by age 13 or 14. And if if you were male, uh, you would go into the family business. But the best of the best moved on to the second level of uh, Hebrew education. It was called Beit Talmud, uh, or House of Learning. And this was for young men 12 to uh, age 12 to 14, no women. The school was tied to the synagogue, and so every single day you would learn from a local scribe. And you would memorize most, if not all, of the Old Testament. The, in Hebrew, that's called the Tanakh. But uh, you would memorize... I mean, just think of that, memorizing Genesis to Malachi, having that in the back of your head. I mean, that makes my head spin. So you would do that in the house of learning, and then after that, most young men were done. But the best of the best of the best, the top 1%, the cream of the crop, summa cum laude, would become a Talmud, a disciple of a rabbi. And this was really hard to get into because uh, you would have to go out on your own and find a rabbi and you would follow him around for a while and he would grill you with questions like, uh, how well do you know the Torah? What about the Talmud? Are you up to speed on that? Are you familiar with Rabbi Hillel's take on the Nephilim in Genesis? What about Rabbi Shammai? Who do you think is right? And he would just grill you to see what you knew and if after a few weeks he thought you had a knack for it, if, you were, if he thought you were smart enough, if you had the drive, the work ethic, if you were uh, type A enough that he thought that one day you could become a rabbi yourself, then he would say, okay, follow me. Be my disciple. Come be my uh, apprentice. So let's say that you were in the top 1% and you made the cup and you became a disciple or an apprentice of a rabbi. If if so, you had two main goals, two main goals. Goal number one was to be with your rabbi. In Mark 3, we're told that Jesus called 12 to be with him that he might send them out to preach, 3.14. And that is that they would be with him 24-7 to learn from him how to be like him so they could carry his vision forward to the next generation. So apprenticeship or discipleship was 24-7. You would literally follow your rabbi around from village to village and synagogue to synagogue. You would spend every waking moment with him, take all your meals with him, sleep at his side by night. And there was a well-known Hebrew blessing in the first century that went like this. The blessing was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And because most of the teaching was not done in a classroom. Most teaching was done out on dusty roads as you traveled from village to village. And your rabbi would walk out in front of you at a slow pace, never in a hurry. And you and several other disciples would be walking behind your rabbi and he would be teaching you by asking you uh, thought-provoking questions all day long. And at the end of the day, you would literally be covered from head to toe in the dust of your rabbi, which was considered 
a great honor and privilege in that time. So your first goal was to be with your rabbi, to learn from your rabbi. The second goal was to become like your rabbi. So to be with him, to become like him. And Jesus has this great line in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 6, verse 40, where he says, a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. And that was the second goal of every disciple. The goal was to one day become like your rabbi so you could do what your rabbi did. And that was the heart and soul of discipleship in Jesus' day. Now, I touched on this earlier, but it, it, again, that goes against the grain of the me-be-me me culture that we live in today because we're constantly told, be true to yourself, be your own person, uh, make a name uh, for yourself. But that's not the world that Jesus was born into. As a disciple, your goal was to literally become a photocopy of your rabbi. You would copy his way, you might say. You would imitate his tone of voice, his dress, his mannerism, and I know today that sounds kind of creepy, but that's, that's how it was. As a disciple, you wanted to be with your rabbi to become like your rabbi, to be with, to become like. So, finally, after all of that, what is a disciple? Here's the way that I would define a disciple. A disciple is someone who accepts Jesus' invitation to be with him, to become like him, to carry on his kingdom vision for the world. A disciple of Jesus is someone who accepts Jesus' invitation to be with him, to become like him, in order to carry on Jesus' kingdom vision for the world, to, become, uh, to be with him, to become like him, to pass on to others what you have learned from him. Okay, okay. History lesson is over, but hold all of that in the back of your mind, and holding that in the back of your mind I think is easier than memorizing the whole Old Testament, but keep that in the back of, the, of your mind. Now, here's what's so crazy about these stories. Peter and Andrew are not the best of the best. James and John are not in the top 1% of their class, and how do we know that? How do we know that? Because they are in the family business. They're working for dad, with dad, and that means for sure they didn't make it to Talmudim uh, discipleship school, and they probably didn't even make it to Beit, uh, Talmud because they were just ordinary, middle of the bell curve, average guys. But Jesus comes to them and he says, follow me, and that was unheard of. It was upside down. A rabbi would never go to a disciple and say, follow me. If you had the right stuff, you would go and find a rabbi to follow yourself. So think about this. Uh, do you see what Jesus meant in John 15 when he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you? You see, that's not so much a commentary on God's sovereignty and salvation as it is a simple statement about Jesus' upside-down approach to discipleship. Because again, it was always the other way around. The disciple would always choose the rabbi, seek out the rabbi, but Jesus goes to these men and he essentially says, listen, 
follow me, and one day you will be able to pass on to others what I am passing on to you. And what they heard him say, what they heard him say is something that no one had ever said to them before. They heard him saying, I believe in you. I believe in you. Now, have you ever had someone uh, believe in you and it literally changed uh, everything about your life or changed the direction of your life? I, I, I know, uh, I'll never forget the first time I preached at Grace Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, and that's the church I was at for nine years before I came here. But uh, Steve Farrar was the lead pastor at Grace, and I was coming out of a uh, kind of a tough experience at my last church, and Grace hired me to be the third teaching pastor. So eventually my time in the preaching rotation came up, and, and uh, I was scheduled to preach on a Sunday, and I was studying and preparing, and I was scared to death, but I, I got up on Sunday and I preached. And then Steve and I went to lunch the next week in order for him to critique my message. And honestly, I did not know what to expect. I mean, Steve is a phenomenal communicator, author, promise keeper, speaker, and uh, he's a big guy, and so he can, he can kind of be intimidating, but I tell you, Steve was so gracious. I mean, he piled on one compliment after another, praise in specific detail. He uh, uh, bragged me up one side and down another. He was so encouraging. I had never had anybody talk to me and believe in me like that before or really ever since. Now, maybe you've had an experience like that yourself, and you know what I'm talking about. Or maybe, unfortunately, you had the exact opposite experience. Like, maybe you were told you were worthless. Maybe your father told you you'll never amount to anything, and you're such a disappointment. And maybe you had that ground into you uh, uh, from your childhood. But here's the truth. The truth is the God who made the world, the God that you and I follow is Jesus of Nazareth. And he invites you to follow him because he believes in you. You know, one of my favorite all-time movies is The Count of Monte Cristo. And uh, you remember uh, with Jim Caviezel, he's the guy that played Jesus and got struck by lightning and all that kind of thing. But anyway, there's a scene uh, where Edmund, who eventually becomes the Count, um, he's been falsely accused and imprisoned, and he's lost his faith, and he's destined to die in prison, and he's angry, and, uh, he, and he wants revenge, and he is in a conversation with uh, his old friend, an old Italian priest named Abbe Feria. And uh, Abbe is dying, and he tells him that there's a great treasure that he can find, um, that, uh, and, and, he, and he says, just don't use the treasure for revenge. And Edmund says, I will surely use it for revenge. And he says, basically, God uh, says, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. And and, and Edmund says, I don't believe in God anymore. And Abe, with his dying breath, says, he believes in you. He, he believes in you. And that was a turning point, the beginning of a turning point, when Edmund starts to come back to faith. Now, listen very carefully, because I almost cringe when I'm saying all of this. This isn't 
like some self-help motivation shot in the arm, like God believes in you now, go out and believe in yourself. Or like, you're a winner, so live like a winner. I mean, no offense, but you're probably not a winner. <laughs> I mean, at least not like you think you are. Uh, um, none of Jesus' disciples were winners. He didn't believe in them because they were the cream of the crop, the top 1%. His belief in them had nothing to do with what they could bring to the table. No, he chose 12 to be with him, to learn from him, so ultimately they could carry his mission forward in the world. And so when I say Jesus believes you, I don't, I don't mean, uh, believes in you, I don't mean that, that any of us has what it takes to help God out. No, I mean Jesus believes in God's calling on your life. Jesus believes in God's calling on your life. How did Paul put it? Paul said, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, saved and called to do good for the glory of God, and you do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus believes that those 12 grade school level disciples, he believes that they can become men who changed the world. But that doesn't happen till Acts chapter two. Apart from the Holy Spirit, these guys didn't offer anything to believe in. But with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they were capable of extraordinary things. And listen, so are you, so are you. So back to our question, what would cause these 12 men to walk away from their careers walk away from the family business, lucrative jobs, walk away from their families and drop everything and follow Jesus. One thing, one thing. They had to have heard Jesus' invitation to be his disciples as the greatest of all privileges. They saw something in Jesus that was so attractive, so amazing, something they considered of greater value than anything else they possessed, that they dropped everything and followed him. So let's add that to our definition of what it means to be a disciple. A disciple of Jesus is someone who accepts Jesus' invitation to be with him, to become like him, to carry on his kingdom vision for the world because a disciple views Jesus' invitation as the greatest offer and privilege imaginable. Think the parable of the pearl of great price. Now all that leads to our second question and that is what does a disciple of Jesus do? Or how, what does it look like? How is it lived out? And around here at Fellowship Greenville, we talk about how this happens in three different contexts or uh, you might say three rhythms of life. And this is the big picture. Disciples of Jesus live their lives with Jesus in community and on mission. Disciples of Jesus live their lives with Jesus in community and on mission. Let me show you. Go back to Mark chapter two, verses 13 and 14. Mark chapter two, verse 13. And Jesus went up on a mountain and he called to himself those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12, whom we also called apostles, that they might be with him to send him out to preach. What did Jesus have in mind for the 12 disciples he called to himself? Look at it. He called 12 to be with him. He called 12 to live 
in community with him, and he called 12 to do what he did, to carry his mission forward. Look at it again. He called 12 to be with him. He called 12 men, not just individual men to have coffee with and eat breakfast on the beach with. No, he called 12 to be with him, to live in community with him, and he called 12 to do what he did. And we call this the triangle, which looks like this. Life with Jesus, life in community, life on mission. Now, I'm not going to unpack all this today. I'm just laying the foundation. But when we talk about discipleship, here at Fellowship Greenville, we're saying that, it, that disciples of Jesus live their lives with Jesus in community and on mission. This is what disciples do. This is how they live, and we're gonna be unpacking that over the next nine weeks. I'm just giving you the brief overview this morning, but we'll do three messages on pursuing life with Jesus, three messages uh, on pursuing life in community, and then three message messages on pursuing life uh, on mission with Jesus. Now, here's here's the thing. Sadly, this is not happening, at least not to the extent that it should be happening in the big C church here in this country. I mean, when I get together with other pastors and church leaders, the number one question that comes up is this. What's your church doing to make disciples? What's working? And they're are blank looks on most of those pastors' faces. Now, some have just started new programs or classes, and they're hopeful uh, that those things will ignite uh, a fire uh, in the lives of the people that they minister to. Other people, other pastors and leaders are on the other side of classes and programs that didn't work because people are just too busy. They're too distracted, too overwhelmed to add another uh, thing to their life when they're whacking moles all over the place. And those pastors and those leaders are discouraged and frustrated, and rightfully so, because the last thing Jesus said before he ascended into heaven was, go make disciples of all nations. And, and, and that is the mission of the church. That's the prime directive. But it's, it's just not happening, at least not to the extent it should be happening And we've got to step back and ask ourselves, why not? Why isn't it happening? And I think there's at least two reasons, two problems I'm going to highlight as I see it in the church today. Number one, discipleship is not happening in the church today because many Christians think they are disciples when they are not. And again, I'm not saying this in a condemning way. I'm trying to get you to think I'm trying to get you to do a little soul searching because that's what I've been doing all week is I've been living with this message. You see, my concern is we think we are following Jesus because we believe in Jesus and we believe he'll take us to heaven when we die. We think we're following Jesus because we believe the Bible is true and that we have the right theology. We think we're following Jesus because sometimes we do have spiritual experiences that make us feel really good. I mean, we think that we're following Jesus because he's the first person that we think about when problems and troubles and disappointments come our way and we run to him and ask him to make the problems go away. Listen, discipleship is not simply believing that Jesus will take you to heaven when you die. Discipleship is not simply knowing the Bible and having the right theology. Discipleship is not simply experiencing God working in your, in your life in supernatural ways. Discipleship is not simply running to Jesus with our problems, hoping he'll whack them and remove them. 
Do you see, problem number one is that what many of us call Christianity, what many of us call following Jesus is not what Jesus calls discipleship. We think we're following Jesus, and we are to some extent, but the salt seems to have lost its flavor. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is simple. We, we have to find out from Jesus what discipleship really is and begin to passionately pursue life with Jesus and mission with Jesus in community with other people who are seeking the same thing. And that's what we're gonna be unpacking over the next nine weeks. But there's an even greater problem. Look at the last passage on discipleship from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter eight, verse 34. Mark chapter eight, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to the crowd, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now this verse and the, and the verses that follow are perhaps the greatest passage on discipleship in the New Testament. But as we wind down, I just want to zero in on the very first line there in verse 34. A lot is packed into verses 34, 35, and 36 about discipleship. But I want to emphasize one thing that rarely gets emphasized in this verse when we talk about discipleship. And that is, look at it again, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone wants to be my disciple. Now stop, right there. A couple of thoughts. First, notice that the invitation of Jesus is to become a disciple and not just a Christian. That the, the, the invitation of Jesus is for you and I to become disciples, apprentices of Jesus. It's not to become a Christian. In this text, there are two groups of people. There are disciples and there's the crowd. And that terminology is used all through the Gospel of Mark, and it's a way that Mark, the writer, wants you as the reader to think about your place in the story. He wants you to think, am I a disciple or am I a face in the crowd? It's a literary device. That's what he's trying to get the people, his readers to think. You've got the crowd, you've got disciples. Where are you in all of this? Now, the problem in this country is we've created a third category that we call Christian. I, I know the word Christian is used in the New Testament, but only two or three times and always in a negative light. The word disciple or apprentice is used 268 times in the New Testament, and it is the dominant way to describe the followers of Jesus. And it's funny, that word Christian, and, and I'm not against using that word necessarily, but I think what Christian means for most people in the country is that you believe in God or uh, a kind of basic level Christianity. You go to church on a semi-regular basis. Uh, you're a semi-moral person, and that's about all the word Christian means. It's, it, is, it is flat and it is shallow. We've created this third category where you can be a Christian without being a disciple of Jesus. And I just, I just want to say in all love and grace, that category doesn't exist in the New Testament or in the teachings of Jesus. You're either a disciple of Jesus or you're in the crowd. 
what does that mean? I, I, honestly, I don't know what it means for you. I, I'm not sure. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying that God doesn't love you. I, 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 but I am saying you're just a face in the crowd. And you're really missing out on what God wants for your life. You're really missing out on, on Jesus' offer of the abundant life because people in the crowd are trying to work out the good life for themselves and you're missing out on what Jesus died to offer you and make possible for you. Dallas Willard, um, great author and philosopher, he, he passed away a while back, but he makes this point this way. Listen to this. He says, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ. Steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That is so good. I tell you, with all the chaos and corruption and violence and injustice going on in our world today, the greatest need more than anything else is for Christians to become disciples and to put the glory of God's kingdom life on display. So as you search your soul, I ask you, where are you in all of this? Are you a disciple or are you just a Christian in the crowd? And then notice, second, the invitation, this invitation is for anybody. If anyone wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple, and this is so incredible, Incredible, because remember, in Jesus' day, discipleship was only for the best of the best of the best. It wasn't for whoever. It was not just for anybody. That was an unheard of idea that a famous rabbi like Jesus would stand up in front of a crowd of people, uh, who, who, who knows how many thousands of people, and that he would say, if anybody wants to come after me and be my disciple, great, y'all come, take up your cross and follow me. Uh, that, would, that, that would be like, I, I don't know, like a famous professor today tweeting out, if anybody wants a full-ride scholarship to Harvard, just direct message me. No problem. You don't have a high school diploma? No problem. We can work it out. Just connect with me, and I'll make it happen for you. And we laugh because that, we know that would never happen. But what's going on in this text would never happen. A famous rabbi like Jesus saying, come on. Anybody, any one of you can be my disciple. But, but, but I'm a woman, can I be your disciple? Yeah, but I didn't make the cut. I didn't even make it to, to uh, Talmud, uh, the second level. I didn't even, I, I, I'm, I'm not qualified. Doesn't matter, come on. Jesus says every single one of you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done or haven't done, 
Doesn't matter who you, who, uh, uh, what you know or, or what you don't know. Uh, despite your failures and despite your successes, Jesus says, I'm inviting you, every single one of you, come out of the crowd and be my disciple. But the sad thing is, discipleship isn't happening in the church today because many Christians are being content by being in the crowd. They are just content by being in the crowd. And that leads us to the second reason discipleship isn't happening in the church today, and that is, number two, discipleship isn't happening in the church today because many Christians do not see Jesus' invitation as the great privilege that it really is. Why? Why are so many Christians content with being faces in the crowd rather than being disciples of Jesus? I mean, could it be that we don't see Jesus as amazing enough or attractive enough or smart enough or powerful enough or valuable enough to put him in the center of our lives and make everything else revolve around him? When it comes to deciding how to live, we act as if we think that we're smarter than Jesus and we know better than him how our lives should play out. When it comes to deciding how to live, we act like we think that our definition of the good life is better than his offer of abundant life. I mean, when it, when it comes to deciding how to live, we think other things are of greater value than being with him, to become like him, to pass on to others what we learn from him. Why is discipleship not happening in the church today? It's not because we still haven't figured out that new program that's attractive enough to get people interested and keep them interested. No, it's because we don't see the one who suffered and died for us as important enough to give him our whole hearts. Oh, we believe he's important enough to take us to heaven when we die, just not important enough to teach us how to live now. 2,000 years later, Jesus' invitation still stands. If anyone wants to be my disciple, if anyone watching in this online crowd wants to be my disciple, if you want to live your life with me, apprentice under me, you are invited. He says, come, follow me, learn from me, study me, devote your life to knowing me, getting to know me, and you'll become like me. And I will enable you to pass on to others what you've learned from me. My life is an adventure. My life, the life I give you, Jesus says, is abundant life. <clears throat> sure, sure, absolutely. There will most definitely be things that you will have to say no to in order to say yes to Jesus. But isn't he worth it? But isn't Jesus worth it. Jesus' invitation, come, follow me, be my disciple, is the greatest privilege you will ever be offered. Don't just be a face in the crowd. Come, be a disciple of Jesus with us and find out what life is really all about.